This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies, have been a hot topic of conversation in recent months, including at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Recently, the acting director of the SEC's Division of Corporate Finance, John Coates, explained, The U.S. securities markets have seen an unprecedented surge in the use and popularity of SPACs. Shareholder advocates, as well as business journalists and legal and banking practitioners, and even SPAC enthusiasts themselves, are sounding alarms about the surge. Concerns include risks from fees, conflicts, and sponsor compensation, from celebrity sponsorship and the potential for retail participation drawn by baseless hype, and the sheer amount of capital pouring into the SPACs, each of which is designed to hunt for a private target to take public. With the unprecedented surge has come unprecedented scrutiny, and new issues with both standard and innovative SPAC structures keep surfacing. It's a lot to talk about, and we are going to unpack the SPACs today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host and chief pun artist, Kurt Wolf. Oh, just just wait, Chris. Uh, it's good to be with you. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna run thick in this one. Uh, this this is like right down the middle between fresh and wonky. I mean, it's got to be fresh, right? Everybody's talking specs, but boy, oh boy, are we gonna get in the weeds on, <laughs> That's this, right. on this deep dive? <laughs> As promised, we want to spend a little bit of time, our usual, about an hour, talking about specs, uh, sort of what they are, why are they so popular, what are some of the regulatory risks and litigation risks, what are some of Chris is going to tell you about some of the accounting considerations. The best part. Exactly. So that by the time we get to the end, hopefully, if you don't already know, you will be fully up to speed on SPACs. I was I was hoping you were going to say, Kurt, hopefully by the end of this, you'll be able to launch your own SPAC because it seems like that's what everybody is doing these days. I think then we'd have to throw in some new disclaimer language ah, that's about true. You yeah. know, recommendations. Like this and this is like not that, investment so. advice, etc. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is just what they are and a little bit about how it works. So why don't we jump right in? SPACs, as I noted up top, those are special purpose acquisition companies, have become a fashionable way for young companies to quickly go public and scoop up some cash to grow. There have been some big names that have gone public in the SPAC space or tried to, including DraftKings, Iridium, Nikola Motors, which, as it turned out, was not a successful SPAC merger, and even Virgin Galactic. There are a lot of different numbers in the SPAC space where people are trying to sort of calculate how fast it's grown or how big the market is. I've come across some that I think are reasonably consistent from from different companies that track these things. So here they are, just for a little bit of context about how big the SPAC market has actually become. In 2009, there was one SPAC IPO. Wow. In, In 2010, there were seven. In 2016, so just just five years ago, there were 13 SPAC IPOs. That number has since 
exploded. Uh, In 2019, there were 59 SPAC IPOs. In 2020, there were 248 SPAC IPOs. And already in 2021, there have been 349 SPAC IPOs, which accounts for 69% of all of the IPOs this year. The proceeds raised through those SPAC IPOs are at over $100 billion, and the average SPAC IPO is around $310 million. Things have exploded almost overnight. Um, in a paper that came out last year, last November, by Stanford Business and Law Professor Michael Klausner, he found that in 2020 alone, SPACs raised as much cash as they did over the entire preceding decade. <laughs> Which which points at a couple things. I mean, one is, look, these are actually not new. In fact, SPACs have been around for decades. And, you know, we want to talk a little bit about the structure and, and how the, the use case perhaps has changed over time. But what we're seeing today is that this new wave of reliance on SPACs has an awful lot to do with early stage companies or startups that want to IPO but they don't necessarily want to invest the time or the money, or they're not quite ready to become an SEC reporting company, uh, or for other reasons, they're, they're not really ready to go through the standard IPO approach. So they're looking for a new way to tap the public markets. And a SPAC promises a fast way to bring in investment cash for their growth. So it, it's sort of that push to go public that is causing a lot of private companies to look at SPACs as a new as a new avenue to do that. But Chris, I don't think that's the only reason. Yeah, I'm surprised we made it, uh, whatever, seven or eight minutes into this episode, Kurt, without mentioning <laughs> all of our favorite sponsors uh, of SPACs <laughs> are, are those folks that you know know and love from from music, from business, from from athletics, from the major major sports leagues here in the States. One of the things that gets covered a lot more on the financial markets uh, news media is the indoctrination of celebrities as SPAC sponsors. And we'll leave... Right. We'll leave validity out of it for now, but (laughs) Kurt, I will pause here too. One of the more famous SPAC sponsors is a man by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. So please, I'll pause here for your your Shaquille O'Neal SPAC-related pun. No, I don't don't have one, but I have heard of him. Yes. I was going to say the Shaq SPAC obviously is here to stay. Oh, man. Um, That's worse than mine. That's right. Uh, He was a strategic advisor. Uh, Take that for what you will in terms of the SPAC space, but also include some folks of general, you know, business standing, such as uh, executives from the Walt Disney Company, which I'm sure you've heard of. If you've heard of Shaq, you've probably heard of Walt Disney, uh, as well as focusing on, you know, a growth sector that they see being a focus of their SPAC in the technology, media and telecommunications Mm -hmm. space. So so Shaq, uh, you know, maybe isn't so focused on the TMT side of the coin uh, where the Walt Disney folks may be there. Not only former NBA legends, but current legend in the making, Steph Curry, is involved in looking at a, at a technology company and the SPAC that he's working with. Uh, from the music side, we've got folks like uh, Sierra and Jay-Z and Beyonce have all been rumored to or have come out and announced their sponsorship of specific SPACs, thankfully being looked at in the consumer products, media, entertainment, and sports sectors for mm-hmm. those individuals, as well as you know, getting back to sports again, uh, tennis legend Serena Williams, MLB star A-Rod, and I believe at some time um, there was an A-Rod and J-Lo SPAC, but I think we're moving away from securities news coverage and into People Magazine coverage there on, on how that might have devolved. We're not going to touch any of the securities regulatory issues that could uh, that could relate to the SPAC split. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say a different kind of despacking there. Um, and it's it's one of those issues. Many of this, you know, I liken it kind of to just from an announcement perspective and an enforcement perspective to, to cryptocurrency. You'll remember three, four years ago, every celebrity had a coin. Uh, I don't know if there was a Shaq coin, but there were a lot of celebrities out there promoting different cryptocurrencies. And and so, too, we're seeing the SEC's Office of Investor Education responding to the what's going on in the market. They actually issued in April an investor alert related to these celebrities. And, and I'll read a little bit from the alert here. Quote, celebrities from movie stars to professional athletes can be found on TV, radio, and social media, endorsing a wide variety of products and services. Sometimes they are even involved in investment opportunities, such as special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs as sponsors or investors. Those celebrities may even be well-known professional investors. However, Celebrity involvement in a SPAC does not mean that the investment in a particular SPAC, or SPACs generally, is appropriate for all investors. Celebrities, like everyone else, can be lured into participating in a risky investment or may be better able to sustain the risk of loss. It's never a good idea to invest in a SPAC just because someone famous sponsors or invests in it or says it is a good investment, end quote. So not to put too much of a damper on the celebrity shine that SPACs are being uh, being seen with today, you know, the <laughs> the SEC wants folks to be sure to do their due diligence whenever they're making an investment decision, Shaq or Serena included. Yeah, look, I think that last paragraph that you quoted is really important, but sort of feels like something that would be read in hyperspeed at the end of a commercial on the yes, radio. That's right. <laughs> right after the side effects of investing in a SPAC. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but it's it's an important it's an important point. If you are thinking about investing in a SPAC, you need to know who the sponsors are. You need to know what is the purpose of the SPAC. And we're going to talk about some of those risks to retail investors in particular in a few minutes. But what we want to do is just take a step back and let's talk about what a what a SPAC is, right? Like we said, it's a, it's a vehicle that can be used to take private companies public. But we want to unpack that a little bit more so you kind of understand how, how it works. Again, SPACs have been around for decades, but there has just been explosive growth in the space in the last couple of years. And the recent resurgence has predominantly involved startups or early stage private companies looking for an alternative method to quote, go public. That is, they're looking for an alternative to the sometimes costly, time consuming initial public offering or IPO process. We're going to walk through the typical sort of two-step process that SPAC teams and startups use to take a private company public. But first, just to sort of level set, I want to take a moment to talk about the more traditional, the standard IPO. So in in an initial public offering, traditionally, a company starts up, uh, you know, we always talk about widget factories in, in law school, and I think you do the same in the accounting world, but um, we'll skip that for today. Let's just That's pretend right. we're, yeah, we'll pretend we're, we're talking about like some cool new tech startup in, in Silicon Valley, right? So we got this tech startup, it opens its doors and begins developing its business. Over time, as the company scales up, it may find that it needs additional capital for new projects or for growth or for new space to, to grow its business. One way for a company to raise capital is to tap the public markets, essentially by publicly selling their stock to investors as a means to raise some cash. Traditionally, to access the public capital markets, a company must go through the initial public offering process. If a company determines that it has the resources and structures in place to IPO and thereafter satisfy SEC reporting requirements, it, it could be ready to become a public company, meaning that it may list its stock or securities on an exchange and raise capital through the public markets. But for some companies, for some startups, the IPO process may not be a good option. The regulatory hurdles are 
are awfully high, uh, and new players like antitrust regulators are making things a little bit more difficult from a regulatory standpoint. The cost can be unpredictable, but is, uh, well, maybe predictably expensive. And um, that, you know, that's because of, of lawyers. It's because of roadshows. It's because of, you know, the varying degrees of complexity of an IPO structure. It's because there may be things a company has to do or invest in to get itself where it's ready to be a, an SEC reporting company. And all of that can take an awful lot of time. These challenges are sort of well-documented, well-understood in the market. It's actually something that former SEC Chair Jay Clayton talked about a lot, was how can we help young companies or smaller companies find an easier path to access the capital markets? And you know he, he did or tried to do a bunch of things to make that easier. But what we found is that it still doesn't always work, right? An IPO isn't always the right thing for an, an early-stage company. So... They can do a few things. I mean, one thing they can do, frankly, is just stay private. They could invest the cash that they might otherwise use in an, in an IPO to, to further scale their business. Or they could try to tap private markets. They can reach out and try to find angel investors. They can look for venture capitalists or hedge funds. But if we've learned anything in the last couple of years, a, a not new but more popular option exists, and that is the SPAC. So we should think about SPACs, um, at least for purposes of today's conversation, as an alternative to the traditional IPO. It's just, as we've said, it's a way to take a private company public. SPACs are sometimes also called blank check companies or or shell companies because essentially the SPAC, the, the company itself, doesn't have operations. It doesn't really do anything other than solicit investors, at, you know, collect money that it puts into trust while it goes out and tries to find a private company that it wants to to merge with or acquire. A typical SPAC proceeds in two stages. I'll talk about step one and then Chris, you can take it away with step two. You got it. In the first stage, the SPAC registers the offer and sale of redeemable securities for cash through a conventional underwriting, sells them primarily to hedge funds or other institutions, and places the proceeds in a trust for future acquisition of a private operating company. Essentially, it looks a lot a lot like an IPO, except it's not to fund any real business operations. Initial investors uh, in a SPAC commonly obtain warrants to buy additional stock later at a fixed price. And sponsors of a SPAC obtain, and these, these can be some of the celebrities that you were talking about, Chris, mm -hmm. sponsors of a SPAC obtain what is called a promote, um, which is the opportunity to acquire greater equity than their initial cash contribution uh, or commitment. Um, and, and the promote is sort of... Uh, exists at their own risk, right? Like part of their job is to go out and raise funds and find an, an acquisition uh, target. And so their promote is sort of a promise, but it's no good unless they do their job and, and find a target. If you are someone who invests in a SPAC at the IPO stage, you're essentially relying on the SPAC's management team um, to go out and find that target. Assuming they find a target, the acquisition or combination is known as the initial business combination. A SPAC may identify in its IPO prospectus a specific industry or business that it will target. Those are some of the ones you mentioned, like the, the Shack SPAC has a very sort of targeted uh, goal or, or right. sector, right, where they want to find a target. And it, it will seek to combine with an actual real company, an operating company in that space, usually some kind of startup or early stage company. But here's the thing. They are not obliged to go out and, and find a, a target or merge with a target or acquire a target. The, the purpose of the SPAC is to, is to sort of look around in a defined space and say, do we see anything we like that we want to use the investor's funds or do we want to deploy the investor's funds to acquire a company in the space? If the SPAC fails to identify a company that it wants to merge with or acquire within a specified period of time, that's usually 
two years. Sometimes it can be 18 months. Every once in a while, you'll see a three-year SPAC. Typically, it's two years. Then basically, the SPAC sort of shuts down and all of the money goes goes back to the investors. It's been held in trust. So it's it's safe in that sense. But you, know, you, you may be getting back what you put in or less, depending on how many shares have been sold and, and whether or not there's been any dilution that would sort of uh, reduce the amount of your investment. So that's sort of step one, is the process of taking the, the SPAC public and then, you know, soliciting investors and going around and looking for a company to to buy. But that brings us to stage two. Yeah, Kurt, I think you did a great job of talking about how step one, you can't avoid it, right? If you want a company to go public, you need a company to go public at some point. And, and you talk about how the holding company here is going public originally, which would be uh, the shell company, the SPAC itself is going public without operations, without significant business interests. And that's what, in my mind, generally speaking, streamlines that IPO process. There's not a significant amount of information or, or pro forma uh, types of information about a SPAC just because of its almost hollow nature and its origination so that you don't have to go through and do those roadshows you talked about and, and wear your hoodie like Mark Zuckerberg to take <laughs> not too seriously, but seriously enough to get an investment right. uh, to get there. So again, in general terms, that's really how a SPAC and an IPO, a traditional IPO, I guess we should say, differ. But that's that's all background, Kurt. Let's get to the fun stuff. Let's start buying some companies with our SPACs. Right. Uh, in their second stage, uh, the SPAC obviously uh, meets its its desire to purchase a, a privately held business. Uh, that business, often called the target uh, or the subject of the SPAC transaction, comes about in, in a variety of different ways. Uh, they Basically, as you said, management will identify what they think is the best investment based on their own strategies and expertise. Now, it's not as easy as just SPAC A buys company B and we all move on. The flavor and style of each SPAC transaction can be wildly different, you know, from an equity purchase of the of the privately held business to what's called a reverse merger. Hopefully, some of you on uh, that are listening are groaning along with every time you hear the phrase reverse merger, <laughs> in which the equity of the the SPAC is actually subsumed into uh, the equity of the the private company or the target, thereby making that that private company the end all name and and uh, version that's traded on the public markets uh, as it goes. We will not spend significant times on reverse mergers or other recapitalization. Uh, type deals on this on this podcast. But what happens? We buy the company. We figure out all that stuff that guys like Kurt and me work on on a regular basis. What happens to the shareholders? At that point, they'll be presented with that target prior to the closing of the acquisition so that they can vote on that acquisition. As shareholders in the original SPAC entity, they're given a chance to vote on what has been called in the markets the D-SPAC transaction. So we've got an acronym and then the reversal of that acronym being the D-SPAC. Many investors who purchased securities early on in the SPAC process will will then have the ability to either sell their shares or redeem additional warrants or other um, considerations after the DSPAC transaction. So in most cases, many investors will probably move forward with the vote if management has, has identified a target they think is worthy and that fits the general tenets of why the SPAC is set up. After the DSPAC transaction, again, that paper transaction where a private company is, is taken public through this acquisition... Um, the entity that that private business that looks so lucrative and, and important to management and to shareholders just keeps on doing what it's doing. Yeah. You know, they keep on making widgets. They keep on putting out commercials with Shaquille O'Neal in them. I don't know, whatever their business is. <laughs> um, but in this way, that's where a SPAC really doesn't impact the operations or the business of the private company, but gives them that alternate pathway to be exposed to the capital markets to, quote unquote, go public and be traded on a stock exchange, and then obviously be subject to all of the issues and, and considerations of the Exchange Act of being a public company and being able to have a very, very liquid market for its shares compared to how it was privately held prior to that. 
despacking. What a fun, fun way to talk about these <laughs> these issues. So it's really great for uh, Kurt. You touched on some of these things as well, um, and we'll talk a little bit about it from the accounting side in a minute too. But a spac transaction, when performed well, really takes what can be an arduous, difficult and long process by which valuations can fluctuate significantly based on what the CEO said last week in a roadshow mm-hmm. to what they tweeted out. You know, All of that information, especially for a privately held company, um, is kept in-house. And so there's not a lot of exposure. There, there can be seen as less risk in going public through a SPAC than through a traditional IPO. You know, We can throw the chart that you guys have all seen a thousand times, the, the pluses and minuses of SPACs and IPOs up. If you haven't seen it, go take a look at some of that information. But that's really what's led to that popular idea today. And I know, Kurt, we've talked a little bit about this. Not only are there operational um, efficiencies and advantages in, in going public through a SPAC, it draws a lot of attention. And yeah. there's that old adage, you know, there is no bad press. So a company being named in a SPAC or being a potential target, folks will gather around that investment to potentially boost up its value and potentially bring in more invested funds so that that privately held yeah. business that's going public can get the attention and potentially have more dollars to work with as they move forward. So we do joke about uh, Colin Spackernick and the Shack SPAC and some others, but as attention is drawn to these privately held businesses, if they've got a good operation and good ideas, this can be a great avenue for them to get a whole lot more exposure than they might've seen in a traditional IPO. Yeah, absolutely. Quick recap, if we think about the two steps here of, of the typical SPAC life cycle, step one is a, a team of, of sponsors uh, or, or investors take a SPAC, which is a shell company, public. And so it's now trading in the public markets. It can go out and solicit investors. Um, All of that money goes into a trust somewhere while the SPAC team does its job, which was disclosed to the investors. And essentially what it says is, hey, we're going to look for a company to acquire in the X space, whatever, media, sports, food industry, whatever it is. Step two is the company or the SPAC has identified a target that they want to acquire. You know, they like all the features of of the company. They like the price. And so they will go to their shareholders and say, we want to satisfy our obligation by acquiring this company and taking it public. What do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. If the shareholders give a thumbs up, then they can proceed with the with the DSPAC um, transaction that will that will take the private company public. As you mentioned, Chris, some of these are very high profile or, or at least very, um, very high publicity DSPAC transactions. Uh, not sure that that always inures to the benefit of the investors. I mm-hmm. think, in fact, in, in 2021, of all of the completed SPAC transactions or DSPACs, uh, there's only one that is currently trading above the price that its shares were valued at the time of the DSPAC transaction, which which leads me to our, you know the next topic we want to hit on, which are some potential disadvantages for retail investors. These are really things that have to do with the nature of the SPAC transaction, some, some risks in the market. It's not meant to be any kind of investing strategy or, or certainly not advice, but just some things that the SEC and others have pointed out that retail investors should be aware of. In the first instance, SPACs just or, or a particular SPAC investment just might not be, uh, for lack of a better term, suitable for a particular investor. And that's always something that an investor should discuss with his or her financial advisor. In fact, the SEC has issued guidance and alerts to investors, which warn that investing in a SPAC may not be a good idea at all. And the SEC has encouraged investors always to do their research, including essentially three steps. Number one, an investor should always check out the background, including registration or license status of anyone recommending a SPAC 
back using search tool investor.gov. But what they're getting at there is make sure you know who who is uh, who's selling you the SPAC, right? That, that's sort of a let's avoid fraud type of warning. Mm-hmm. Um, investors should also learn about the SPAC sponsor's background experience and financial incentives how the SPAC is structured, uh, the securities that are being offered, the risks associated with an investment in the SPAC, the SPAC's plans for a business combination, uh, and, and other shareholder rights um, that you can find by carefully reading the prospectus for a particular SPAC. Uh, and third, an investor should consider the investment's potential costs, risks, and benefit in light of the investor's own investment goals. So again, it, it has to be a specific analysis based on your own risk appetite, based on where you are in your financial planning, that conversation is best had with uh, with your financial advisor. In addition to these sort of just basic suitability questions, there's a, a growing body of scholarship that would suggest that that maybe SPACs just aren't the, the best investments, right? And I kind of I kind of alluded to this a moment ago. A 2020 paper co-written by Stanford business and law professor Michael Klausner, NYU law professor Michael Ulrega, and consultant Emily Ruin studied 47 SPACs that went through a successful merger between January 2019 and June 2020. Essentially, their research discovered that the SPACs process has the effect of diluting the value of shares in the company. And in the end, SPAC investors bear the cost of going public rather than the company that wishes to tap the capital markets. I just want to read through their own summary of their findings because I, I think it's interesting and, and something to think about if you're trying to understand the SPAC space. So their first finding was that although SPACs issue shares for roughly $10 per share and value their shares at $10 when they merge, by the time of the merger, the median SPAC holds cash of just $6.67 per share. So cash on hand is significantly less than the value or or the price at which the shares are trading. Second, the dilution embedded in SPACs constitutes a cost roughly twice as high as the cost generally attributed to SPACs, even by SPAC skeptics. Third, when commentators say SPACs are a cheap way to go public, they're right, but only because SPAC investors are bearing the cost. Uh, and, and the people who wrote this paper at least think that that's sort of unsustainable for, for SPACs generally as, as sort of, a, you know, going forward as an option for startups that want to go public. Uh, fourth, although some SPACs with high quality sponsors do better than others, SPAC investors that hold shares at the time of a SPAC's merger see post-merger share prices drop on average by a third or more. And that's sort of getting back to the point that I made that only only one in 2021 is now trading above the price where it was at the time of the merger. Uh, so all, all of this is just to say that there are some there are some distinct risks for retail or other investors who want to jump on the SPAC train. And if nothing else, you can bet that the SEC will be looking at the retail investor risks and some other risk areas relating to SPACs. I don't know, Kurt, you've kind of soured me now after hearing some of those statistics that you brought up from the paper. You know, I was excited to get on, you know, Josh Allen's uh, SPAC here in Buffalo, but uh, maybe that's not something I should. Yeah, you know, we haven't found the right SPAC sponsor for you. Yet, that's right. Yeah. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, we can get a, a famous uh, swimming uh, person to, to have their SPAC. Maybe Michael Phelps is getting into it, but love it. We'll save that for another one. 
Kurt, you talked about some of the issues for retail investors, and I don't know how you didn't touch on accounting issues generally, although this is a little bit less investor-focused and a little more company-focused. Oh, yeah. That's what you're here for, man. There I was just is. trying to tee it up for Perfect. you. I know. The, the accounting issues at play with this SPAC frenzy really fall into two broad categories, um, and we talked a little bit about them from the advantages perspective, but from accounting viewpoint, they may be a little bit of a disadvantage, and that's speed and, and preparation or expertise. The more well-trod IPO process or even the more recently popular direct listing events are circumstances through which the speed and experience of the accounting and finance professionals involved can manage expectations and skills appropriately. You know, IPOs are well known for being planned for months, quarters, and even years in advance. And companies have time to run their operations through the ringer reporting period after reporting period to work out any issues before going live, before they go public. If the company doesn't have the skills or abilities in-house for a traditional IPO, it can rely on outside firms to supplement and even teach their folks how to operate as a public company prior to their launch. And specialized consulting service lines focus on what's called IPO readiness for accounting and finance professionals for just that purpose. You know, you've got a team of folks in the timeline by which you can go public traditionally through an IPO. We've talked about how the SPAC process is unique and potentially very fast. You know, that two-year ticking clock could be uh, mm -hmm. very difficult. And, and as an accountant, you know, two years is very short. You know that we're <laughs> a very fast-moving uh, industry. It can lead to many issues that develop during the formation of the SPAC originally when that uh, shell company goes public, issues that arise during the de-SPAC period. And then, you know, you've got a company to run and financial reporting requirements to meet after you de-SPAC. So things that are relatively straightforward in that traditional SPAC A buys company B example mm -hmm are supremely nuanced uh, when you look at them in practice. Is this one of those reverse recapitalization issues in which SPAC A's equity is being subsumed by company B? Uh, is this a variable interest entity? Uh, I was waiting for Kurt to do like, ooh, very VIE uh, related uh, sound effect. <laughs> or, you know, who is really the acquirer in the business combination viewpoint? And there's very strict accounting rules on how that should be treated. So not only just the transaction itself, but the appropriate what we call accounting framework in, might also be in play for evaluation. You know, a private company is not subject to generally accepted accounting principles to the same extent that a publicly traded company or a registered entity may be. The AICPA's Private Company Council provides accounting alternatives for private companies that don't meet the needs of having to file their financial statements under GAAP, but have the ability to present financial information in a meaningful way based on their business. So as a SPAC sponsor or a management team, you may look at the financial reports of a private company and say, this looks really good. Let's take them. And then if you were to translate those private company council-based financial statements into a gap presentation, like you will after you de-SPAC, that business may look very different in terms of how they account for things. Mm -hmm. So it's important to, to know that going into it, as well as, God forbid, this company has international operations and they're reporting under IFRS, or the International Financial Reporting Standards, completely different from what we know here in the States as GAAP, yeah. another consideration to look at. So- you know, I look at this and say we should know considerations going in. Some of my more cynical friends uh, are already prepping their securities <laughs> litigation teams for when these pro forma financial statements or other metrics that are being calculated under different accounting frameworks turn out to be not as good as they had hoped uh, when they de-SPAC originally. And Kurt, uh, I know we make jokes on here about Reg BI. Um, we might need to start a counter for me and ICFR, or Internal Controls Over Financial Reporting, and SOX 404. It's something we've talked about a ton, uh, and here especially is another 
uh, instance in which a SPAC business, both the the shell company that started out as a publicly traded entity and the private company may not be up to snuff when it comes to the appropriate evaluation of the internal controls over financial reporting or management's evaluation of those controls. So that's another area that companies that are longstanding for decades, if not centuries, as well as those who go a traditional IPO route suffer with uh, in terms of getting their ICFR in place in compliance with SOX 404. So the speed and the efficiencies that are beneficial in a SPAC may lead to ICFR related issues down the road. I'm going to keep going here, Kurt, until you, you give me the hook. Let's not forget about corporate <laughs> governance. Your board and your audit committee of the SPAC obviously are playing almost three different roles, formulating a publicly traded entity, identifying and transacting in a DSPAC transaction, and then running a publicly traded entity after that transaction. They may not have the skills to do all three. They may not have the abilities to serve a, a good board position or as an audit committee member in all three phases. So thinking about that is definitely a, a focus uh, of the board. And then obviously the external auditors that you work with throughout all three phases of this need to know what's going on from a SPAC perspective. Uh, you need to have good advice and, and work well with your audit team to know what issues are arising, how to best deal with those issues and mitigate those risks, as well as report out what you may need to report out to make sure that your audit report represents your, your company appropriately at all of those phases. So Kurt, one last quick accounting bit. is It's made a lot of headlines over the past few months, and that's right. accounting for warrants. Uh, mm. in these SPAC transactions. You talked a little bit about the equity awards and the promote that are being granted to sponsors and investors. The SEC came out in April with a statement that SPACs need to classify any warrants related to their equity holders as liabilities, not as equity instruments. Now, Kurt, we could do three and a half hours of a podcast on, on warrants and, and warrant accounting. We'll save that for next episode. But right now, I'll just <laughs> say it's very complex and detailed. But the general idea is that a SPAC owes a value to its investors that's indexed to its stock price, and in some cases adds additional consideration that can vary based on when the investor first you know, invested in the SPAC, what type of holder they are, if they're a sponsor, if they're an investor, if they're in management. Uh, there's a lot of different variety in the way that these warrants can be represented. And so that actually, because there is some variable consideration within the accounting for those warrants, they need to be treated as liabilities instead of just a, a share of stock in the SPAC. Uh, as it stands. So in a weird way, you can imagine a scenario in which because the greater the value of the SPAC, the higher the stock price, the higher the variable consideration, the higher the liability. The better your SPAC looks in the market from a stock price perspective, so too liabilities may grow in that same position and look a little bit different on the balance sheet than previous to the SEC putting out on that that issue. So again, we could spend a long time talking about warrants and, and accounting and specs. Just wanted to touch on that issue briefly because it has made the news a lot. Um, and we're very interested in following how these things developed, what the unique characteristics of the formulation, acquisition, de-spacking, and subsequent reporting look like, both from the warrants perspective and generally. All right, Kurt, I know I made you suffer through enough accounting there. No, no, it was great. And, and the last point I think was really important. You know, I, I read an article in the uh, LA Business Journal uh, last week, I think, that was sort of talking about how this accounting for warrants is having a real chilling effect on the market generally. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that we haven't talked a lot about is uh, sort of how... I don't want to say at the end, but following this period of explosive growth in the SPAC market, we are now experiencing a pretty rapid decline. They're just we're just not seeing as many. There seems to be less interest uh, in the market and among investors. And part of that, at least according to this article, has to do with the accounting for warrants. And I think it just it, it makes the fundamentals uh, less appetizing to potentially to shareholders who are being asked to vote on a DSPAC um, or to investors that you're trying to to bring into the SPAC. So it's it's, it's an incredibly important point, and, and I'm glad that you sort of hit that one last um, to make sure people got it, but also because I think it flows naturally into the next thing that we want to talk about. 
So I think it was helpful for you to, to lay out some of the nuts and bolts, right? Because it, it's important for, you know, the SPACs to get it right all the way through the DSPAC transaction, uh, because that has significant implications from a, a regulatory and litigation standpoint in terms of things that can that can potentially go wrong or risk areas for the SPAC. So I want to talk a little bit about what I think are two of the bigger risk areas, um, which are SEC enforcement or regulatory enforcement and litigation risk. Uh, I will start with SEC enforcement because it's obviously my favorite thing to talk about. Our favorite, Kurt. Our favorite thing to talk about. So a a SPAC uh, or a post-DSPAC public company's financial reporting and public statements are a, a real risk in terms of potential regulatory scrutiny or, in the worst case, enforcement action. SEC enforcement never shies away from investigating and bringing securities offering cases or reporting and disclosure fraud cases. Uh, in fact, for the SEC's fiscal year 2020, securities offering cases were the largest category of SEC enforcement actions, accounting for nearly one third of all the SEC's cases. And that was not a blip. Uh, securities offering cases were the second highest category in 2019, and they are traditionally among the top three buckets of SEC enforcement cases annually. So if we were to see an SEC enforcement case involving uh, a SPAC or or really kind of thinking about a a DSPAC transaction, what would that look like? Well, again, we've talked a lot about uh, John Coates, who is now the the general counsel at the SEC, but was the acting director of the division of Corp Fin for a while. He gave us a pretty good look at what an SEC enforcement case might look like in a speech in April. He explained that an SEC enforcement action could involve any material misstatement in or omission from an effective Securities Act registration statement as part of a DSPAC business combination. That would be under Securities Act Section 11. An enforcement case could involve any material misstatement or omission in connection with a proxy solicitation. So this is sort of asking the shareholders to vote on the proposed DSPAC. Uh, that could be subject to liability under Exchange Act Section 14A and Rule 14A-9 thereunder. Um, and, you know, importantly, for those cases, that's only a negligence standard, right? So we're not even looking for necessarily like knowing bad behavior mm-hmm. on on the part of the SPAC team or the sponsors, right? They can just not have done their job well. An enforcement case could involve any material misstatement or omission in connection with a tender offer. And, and that would be a charge under Exchange Act Section 14E. Uh, those are the ones that Mr. Coates highlighted. Of course, that is to say nothing about the availability of fraud charges, for example, under Section 17A of the Securities Act of 1933. You know, I think, look, Coates was essentially warning that any kind of misstatement or omission that that a SPAC team makes in connection with a proposed DSPAC transaction could lead to charges, mm-hmm. including fraud charges by the SEC. And it's worth noting that we we actually have seen this play out at least once uh, in the middle of, uh, you know, sort of SPAC mania, right? So last yeah. summer, the SEC uh, brought an enforcement action. Uh, it was a settled case against the former CEO of a SPAC relating to the SPAC's merger with an intelligence communications company. According to the SEC's order, the SPAC merged with the target company after the SPAC's shareholders uh, voted to approve the merger. But the order found that the CEO negligently, again, 
That's the standard here. Negligently yep. failed to take responsible steps and conduct appropriate due diligence to ensure that the SPAC's shareholders had material and accurate information about the target's business prospects, including accurate information about a claimed backlog of orders from mm. a, a large customer, about the pipeline of possible future orders from new customers, and about the target's purported ownership of a game-changing cellular interception product. So basically, boil that down. Uh, the CEO didn't give the shareholders the information they needed to make an informed decision about whether to vote thumbs up or thumbs down on the proposed DSPAC. The CEO agreed to settle the the, uh, the charges. There were fraud charges. There were charges relating to misstatements on the proxy statement. And he paid a six-figure fine and was temporarily barred from the industry. I think it's a good example of what these cases could could look like. Uh, it also shows how the SPAC team or the sponsors could potentially be on the hook, right? Because in some cases, they're the ones that are actually uh, vetting the target, making information available to the shareholders, going out and soliciting investors. So, I mean, plenty of room there for SEC enforcement. Yeah, I think that hits on a lot of the things we've talked about already and, and kind of slow down and know what you're doing here. Uh, you just listed, I think I counted six different ways that the SEC can come after you if you're not representing yeah. something appropriately uh, about the SPAC that you're you're pushing towards investors. So uh, definitely I'm, I'm looking down the road here and seeing a lot of potholes that someone's going to yeah. be need to be a good driver to get around. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's just the low hanging fruit. The SEC enforcement staff is uh, is very creative when they need to be. So those are just, you know, again, the question was, what is it likely to look like? And, and I think that's it. But that is to say nothing of litigation risk, uh, private litigation risk mm -hmm. that that exists in connection with uh, really with a DSPAC. Uh, the current dynamic in the SPAC market, where we're just sort of seeing more capital chasing after the same opportunities, or at least we were until very recently, presents a, a heightened risk for for litigation. And in fact, uh, it, here at Coin Emanuel, we did a, a survey of the of some dockets to see what was going on, and there has been a noticeable uptick in SPAC litigation in 2020 and 2021. Uh, we should only expect that that trend is going to continue. Yeah, my cynical friends are, are smiling somewhere. Those that were prepping for. <laughs> securities litigation. <laughs> well, I think I think it's coming. And so, you know, at, at least as we see it, the, the litigation risk falls into a few buckets. And those relate to the initial registration statement, the proxy statement, uh, the business combinations registration statement, and the fiduciary duty of the, the SPAC team or sponsors. Uh, you know, those sort of overlap, I think, a lot with, with the enforcement case that we talked about. But I'm going to just, I'm going to run through them quickly to give a little bit more context on what they mean. So first, the SPAC's initial registration statement. Uh, like I said, kind of looks like SEC enforcement. Essentially, the SPAC shareholders are likely to scrutinize the initial registration statement for any material misstatements or omissions. So like, what did the SPAC say it was going to do? Did they do it? Did, did they fail to tell the shareholders something, right? These are sort of classic kind of securities litigation cases. Second are the merger proxy statement cases, or what we think will be a class of merger proxy statement cases. Uh, in those cases, the SPAC shareholders may sue for securities fraud relating to representations in the proxy statements, the proxy statement that is issued in connection with the DSPAC transaction, and that is, you know, again, asking for the shareholders to give up a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the merger. Um, the, the greatest risk here with respect to the proxy statement relates to the use of projections 
You know, there are some unanswered questions about whether or not a safe harbor for forward-looking statements that exists in the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, you may know it as PSLRA, would apply in the context of a DSPAC. I think we're going to see that litigation play out over time. Uh, what we do know is that the safe harbor does not apply to knowing misstatements. Mm -hmm. So again, we got a potential problem here in the proxy statements that, you know, number one is is these sort of projections. And for what it's worth, uh, there have been 10 of these cases filed in the last three months. Um, another risk area relating to proxy statements is uh, litigation alleging that the SPAC team failed to conduct adequate diligence on the merger target. Kind of like this SEC enforcement case that I talked about a couple minutes ago, uh, there have already been a number of these cases filed. The third litigation risk area is uh, the business combinations registration statement. If a SPAC merger involves the issuance of shares, the new company could face uh, significant risk in the form of strict liability for any misstatements in its registration statement, in the new company's registration statement. Essentially, much like the initial registration statement cases, the post-SPAC shareholders are going to scrutinize the combined entity's registration statements to see if there are any misstatements or omissions. And like the other categories, there have already been several cases that are filed, uh, a couple that are final, that would suggest that there could be strict liability for misstatements in any registration statement issued in connection with the DSPAC. So this is uh, this is a real risk. And then the last litigation risk that I want to talk about it relates to the SPAC teams or the SPAC sponsors' fiduciary duty. Look, the SPAC shareholders can sue, saying that they breached a duty that they owed to the SPAC to the shareholders. The sponsor usually receives part of the target upon the DSPAC completion through a promoter warrants or, or otherwise sort of get some kind of equity stake in the new company. The sponsors or the SPAC team therefore may have incentives to complete a merger, even if it's not prudent to do so, even if it's not the best target, even if they're doing it because they know they're bumping into their two-year time limit. And so, you know, sort of disgruntled shareholders, maybe shareholders that voted thumbs down on, on the DSPAC could essentially look back to see what happened and sue the SPAC team, sue the sponsors for breaching a fiduciary duty, essentially saying, you know, you didn't disclose conflicts or this wasn't done in good faith. Um, so, you know, that was that was sort of a lot to throw out there. But I think the, the point is there are real risks of regulatory scrutiny and SEC enforcement. There are also real risks uh, in a litigation, in a private litigation context that have a lot to do with what the SPAC team is doing, what they are disclosing, and what happens in connection with the DSPAC transaction. One of the things that sticks with me, Kurt, about everything you just talked about is that old uh, moniker for Silicon Valley, that they move fast and break things. Um, I see a, a, everything you just listed as reasons why a SPAC management team and, and an <laughs> investor group and sponsors should not move fast or try to break things because not only are there potential ramifications from an enforcement perspective, but just because the transaction closes and you move forward, that operating business, God forbid, it doesn't perform the way you thought it would because those investors will be at your doorstep with a, a summons or a, or a complaint for you to respond to. Yep, absolutely right. Well, Kurt, we're here in late June uh, taping this episode and we'll be out uh, next month. We talk about filings and disclosure related to each of these uh, companies, these SPACs and these de-SPAC publicly traded entities. Those will be the focus of the commission. Obviously, that's a touch point where they will continue to interact with those companies. Yeah. But, you know, the investor protection things that we've talked about, you talked about investor.gov. Uh, we joke, uh, Commissioner Crenshaw on a previous episode advised our hypothetical investors in a pump and dump uh, Broadway show. They should have gone to <laughs> investors.gov uh, prior to their making 
taking their investment. But there are some real questions here, not only from a protection of investors from outright fraud and being misled to, you know, kind of those general ideas of liability and fiduciary duty, like you talked about, you know, are current liability protections for investors voting on or buying shares at the time of a DSPAC transaction sufficient if some of the SPAC sponsors or advisors are touting the SPAC with vague assurances of lessened liability for those disclosures? Do we have a difference in communication and reality? Um, Do those liability provisions give the folks involved, those sponsors, those private investors, or the managers of the target company, sufficient incentives to do appropriate due diligence? Or are they incentivized just to get the deal done? You know, those are are issues that we see in a general, you know, IPO and M&A markets, which could only be inflated if that becomes an issue with the SPAC landscape. And then finally, is it appropriate to go by what the potentially litigious shareholder claims uh, bar will determine is the appropriate amount of liability. Mm -hmm. I always use the example that, you know, you can sue anybody but you want, but you might not win just because they made a bad business decision. You talked a lot about negligence and some of the other knowing issues that may have to appear uh, on each of these different securities fraud or litigation charges. Uh, It's important that we think about this ahead of time before we let, you know, what what can be seen as a, a voracious public uh, in the markets potentially litigating this out of out of existence because of how they feel that they were treated. I agree with you completely. I, you're sort of hinting at the, the business judgment rule, which mm-hmm. we could talk an awful lot about, like many of uh, like many of the accounting topics That's that right. we try to just, you know, <laughs> we give that 30,000 foot view. But no, you're absolutely right. There are there are risks there. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm going to be keeping an eye on uh, on the sort of evolving landscape is just how how are we thinking about this from a regulatory perspective? How is the SEC thinking about it? Again, as I mentioned earlier, Jay Clayton focused an awful lot on trying to figure out how to streamline the process that companies, particularly smaller companies, can access the capital markets. We're starting to see that play out through SPACs, through direct listings. And all along the way, we are hearing speeches and requests for comment from the SEC about what should the rules look like? How should they apply to these new avenues. Um, So I think there's going to be I think there is going to be some action in this space, maybe not in the near term, right? Uh, Gary Gensler just laid out his regulatory agenda a couple of weeks ago. It is uh, remarkably robust. I don't believe it included SPACs, but you can imagine it's something that's going to come on the radar. Between now and then, I think what we're likely to see are more investor alerts, more guidance come out from people like John Coates or the new director of the Division of Corporate Finance. And there have already been some interesting or telling moments. And just you know, one that I will highlight here that I think could be important going forward, both for, for the SEC in terms of their regulatory mandate and their enforcement mandate, as well as in the, the private litigation context, is just how we should think about the DSPAC, right? So when we think about SPACs, they're attractive to private companies because they're already public. They already went through an IPO. And so the, the DSPAC is really just the, the transaction or the, the merger that allows the, the private company to kind of be gobbled up and now like as if by magic, they're a public company. In his speech in April, John Coates said something to the effect of, look, when that happens, that really looks like the moment when the private company goes public. So in a sense, that is the private company's IPO. And then we've heard a very similar thing just just last week on Bloomberg TV. Gary Gensler said, he said it a couple of times actually, well, I like to think of these, the DSPAC transaction as the quote, target IPO. So that the target's IPO. And so what I'm hearing is that throughout the divisions around the SEC, there seems to be a view developing that the DSPAC functions as or is a functional equivalent to 
an IPO. And that, of course, matters in terms of charging decisions the SEC could make, right? If if they want to say that's an IPO, they may have different options in terms of bringing an enforcement action. It certainly matters in the context of private litigation with respect to uh, the applicability of safe harbors in the PSLRA. So it's going to be interesting if we if we hear more of this, right, where it just becomes almost a truism that the DSPAC really is an IPO, like really – We all agree it's an IPO. Uh, I think that could change the landscape. So anyway, that's something that I'm going to be watching. You know, one of the things I like to keep my eye on, Kurt, is how the general market participants react to new ideas, to new topics like SPACs. And one of the best ways they do that is through memes, Kurt. Obviously. Through memes. So to hit on our final fun topic today, we've got a few uh, spec-related memes that we'll describe to you and encourage you uh, to go check out. And and maybe we can link these uh, in the show notes here. But Kurt, I don't know if you want to run through a couple of your favorites. I mean, a lot of these are pretty good. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yeah, I'll just we've got like a little grab bag here. Um, (laughs) You know, the one the one I like and it's uh, I'm going to have to confess and this is maybe embarrassing. But, you know, I I thought Billy Madison was Mm. a pretty, pretty amazing movie. If you recall, it's Adam Sandler uh, stars as a grown-up who basically has to go back. It's a go coming back of age school. story, Curtis. Yeah, just, there you go. <laughs> different ages. Um, but uh, along the way, he he befriends um, people in, in all the grades he has to go through, including a, a young boy who has a little problem with uh, with wetting his pants. And so there's this hilarious scene where uh, where the boy wets his pants. Billy Madison goes and sprays his pants with a hose, and you know comes back and says. You're not cool unless you pee your pants. And the old lady, of course, responds. That's right. <laughs> if peeing your pants is cool, then call me Miles oh, Davis, Davis, which is amazing. Uh, but so the meme, the meme is, it's a picture of Billy Madison pointing to where he has um, sort of fake wet his pants. And it says, 2020, you ain't cool unless you start a spec. <laughs> so, I've seen a lot of those guys out there. One of my favorite TV characters of all time. Don Draper uh, is famous for his ability to pitch uh, advertising campaigns and and new client ideas. And, you know, along the way, he doesn't always give the perfect pitch. And there's a famous scene of him uh, describing to a client for Life Serial the campaign that that he thought was going to really bring that to the forefront. However, as those, you know, uh, fans of the Mad Men television series may know, uh, Don has the penchant for a, a liquid lunch. So in this case, there's a very famous photo of Don Draper, obviously blottoed, attempting to describe this campaign. And, and behind him now in the SPAC <laughs> meme setting instead of the Life Serial setting where he was uh, unfortunately unsuccessful with his drunk presentation, his poster board that was made by the art department instead of displaying the logo of the company says, you know, I've got a new idea, a SPAC that invests in SPACs. <laughs> And then references a, a potential company to, to lead those investments. So a little hint at you know how crazy the SPAC market has become uh, over time. I love it. That's that's a very meta <laughs> SPAC that invests in SPACs. That's right. Uh, all right, I got I got an, another one for you. Uh, it is. It is from The Wolf of Wall Street. Of course, uh, you know Leonardo DiCaprio plays Jordan Belfort, and I mean, I like Wolf of Wall Street is just in so many ways I've become. You know, almost its own little caricature of Wall Street largesse, yes, and uh, sometimes wasteful spending, and you know, just all the all the things that you can imagine, right? Yep. And so this one, I think, is I think it's great because it's DiCaprio as Belfort standing on the top deck of a yacht, just 
throwing wads of cash off into the bay or, or wherever. He's actually, I think he was still at the dock in this scene, but he's just throwing money off the top deck. And so the meme is this picture of DiCaprio throwing cash off the yacht and above uh, above DiCaprio, it says Wall Street. And he evidently is throwing money at, in the, in the lower corner of the meme, uh, literally any new SPAC, it says. <laughs> just take the money. It's just, it's a whole mood, you know? I love it. And then we got to wrap up with the queen of television, one of the most famous memes of all time, the wonderful and very generous TV talk show host, Oprah, uh, with the classic meme where she is pointing to the audience and saying, you get a SPAC, and you get a SPAC, and you get a SPAC, referencing all of the awards and and generous gifts she's given to her audience over the years. It does seem like that's been the mood, uh, you know, up in maybe the past 18 months in the SPAC space. So a nod to Oprah. Uh, on how she's handing out SPACs very generously. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Hey, if we missed any good SPAC memes, hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to see them because there are some pretty good ones out there. You got it. Well, thanks, guys, for listening to a little bit of a clarification and a deep dive uh, into the world of special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs. Hopefully you learned something new or, or maybe you've got a few more questions you'd like to have answered about SPACs. Uh, I don't know, Kurt, if we could sum it up in a couple of different words. It'd probably be take your time and, and go into it trying to learn something more than just throwing your money at the SPAC itself. But uh, that may not be a f- appropriate legal or accounting advice generally. No, I mean, I think it, I think it's good advice generally. Uh, look, just watch the market. It's a changing space and be careful out there. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen, and complete our listener survey to let us know what you think of the podcast. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.